History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. The Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 19. The Beloved of Ray, Pepe. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast. When we left off at the end of Episode 18, Egypt's royal household had just been rocked by the first instance of regicide. King Teti was murdered by a conspiracy of courtiers and bodyguards, who were punished with one of the harshest retributions available to the Egyptians. The desecration of their tombs, the removal of their names from the monuments, banished their souls, known as the Ba, to obscurity and homelessness in the afterlife. An eternity of wandering and loneliness, made harsher by the ritualistic damaging of their ankles through chiseling out the feet of their artistic imagery. Today, we return to the world of the living, and the exploits of a royal official named Weni the Elder. Having built a tomb at Abydos, the origin point for many of Egypt's royal traditions, Weni commissioned a long biographical text detailing his exploits in the service he made during the reigns of Pepi I and Merenre. Today's episode is Weni's story, specifically the story of Weni correlating with the reign of Pepi I. Weni was born into wealth and privilege. He grew up in close connection with the members of the royal court, attaining his first governmental office shortly after reaching maturity. Though we do not know the exact age when Egyptians differentiated between a child and an adult, they referred to this moment as tying on the headband, meaning to take on the insignia of one who is mature and ready to serve. Weni tied on the headband late in the reign of Teti. Due to his youth, it is likely he had no inkling of the conspiracy which eventually murdered this king, and Weni seems to have stayed loyal to the main branch of the royal family. In his biography, he makes no mention of the short-lived successor to Teti, a man named Usurkare. Instead, Weni jumps straight from Teti to Pepi I, reflecting the popular perception of Usokare as an interloper, possibly even a usurper. Weni's career proceeded in a relatively smooth manner, which you'd expect from someone almost born to serve in the court. He was appointed assistant supervisor of court officials, and soon became a member of the elite group known as the Semer, or Companions. Subsequently, Pepi I appointed Weni to serve as a supervisor of the priests working in the pyramid complex being built at Saqqara. This prestigious position entitled Weni to a share in the offerings being made at the mortuary temple, and over years of service, this position could make the official reasonably wealthy in his own right. Like the Chemnetcher priests serving in the Abu Sia monuments, Weni's tenure in the Pyramid Temple of Pepi I 
ensured a stable, semi-regular income with very little effort required. Life was not all easy money. Pepe I was a strong ruler who put Winnie to the task of governing a small region with significant responsibilities. The region was an ancient site named Nekin. Winnie was named to the senior warden of Nekin, where he sat in judgment of local cases and worked together with the royal vizier to oversee the proper administration of this most ancient of Egyptian towns. Nekin, you may remember, was one of the ancestral homes of Egyptian kings, along with Abydos. Weni's tenure as warden at Nekin was a prestigious role, indicating great trust and faith on the part of Pepe I. Weni seemed to regard this as one of his most satisfying roles, if we are to believe his words. Quote, His Majesty placed me as senior warden of Nekin, his heart being filled with me more than any other servant of his. I judged cases myself, together with the vizier in all confidence and all matters connected with the name of the king, because the heart of his majesty was filled with me more than any official of his, any noble of his, or any servant of his. End quote. When his service in Nekin was prestigious, there is no doubt about that, and it earned him the right to make a claim of the royal household, which we do not see very often in ancient Egyptian writings. Quote, I requested from the majesty of my lord that there be brought for me a sarcophagus of limestone from the Tura quarry. His majesty sent a treasurer of the god with a detachment of sailors to fetch for me this sarcophagus. The sarcophagus returned with him in a great cargo boat from the royal residence together with its lid and a false door, a lintel, two door jams, and one offering table. Never had the like been done for any servant of his, for I was excellent in the heart of his majesty. End quote. It was no small matter to request a sarcophagus from the royal household, and when he says he was able to make this request on a combination of good service, close friendship with the king, and a level of trust from Pepe that outstripped any of his contemporaries. Of course, we must always be wary when an Egyptian official claims that he was either more celebrated than his contemporaries, more trusted than any other man, or that something was done for him which had never been done before. Egyptians were very fond of inflating their own abilities and their own level of confidence with the ruler. So that if you took these testaments literally, you would have to assume that each king had about a dozen best friends, each of whom was more beloved than the last. It's almost ridiculous. But the request that Winnie made to have a fine limestone sarcophagus extracted from the royal quarries is something that we haven't seen before in our story. Furthermore, it was no easy task to accomplish. As Winnie says, a full detachment of workmen was required, who journeyed from the capital city at Memphis across the Nile to Tura. When they extracted the materials for the sarcophagus, and several other funerary items beside, they took all these up the Nile to Abydos. This was an upstream journey, so against the current, and would have taken many days to accomplish. 
Winnie was not joking around when he said this was a truly splendid recognition of his service. And this may be one of the first times that such a gesture was made by a king for his official. Of course, earlier officials had been granted the luxury of building august and splendid tombs, but to the best of our reckoning, the sarcophagus commissioned by King Pepe for Winnie was the first of its kind. Earlier officials make no mention of their sarcophagi coming from anything but their own pocket. Now, this isn't a particularly enormous change in itself, but it is definitely a part of the larger trend we've been discussing now for the past five or six episodes. As the Egyptian royal household adapted and shifted its policies to incorporate the elite families which dominated various regions, they began to establish increasingly reciprocal relationships. For Winnie, a strong career of loyal service was not just rewarded with the right to build a tomb at Abydos, or even the lucrative priesthood which would provide him with wealth for very little input. The gift of a sarcophagus from the king brought the reciprocal relationship between the elite official and the ruler directly into the burial chamber of the tomb. Of course, this paid dividends for Pepe as well. Wenny's loyalty was close to unbreakable after so many years of responsibility and reward bestowed upon him by the king. Though he benefited materially from his career, he also became strongly tied to the royal household, in a way that I think very few of us today could really understand. After all, it is a very rare thing to find a person who feels intense loyalty for the company they serve, no matter how much they are paid. Wenny's life was perhaps not typical of the average Egyptian official, but it was certainly a symptom of the times. Loyalty was given to the king, who in turn gave one the means to achieve a full and splendid immortality. If that's not a career incentive, I just don't know what is. Let's move away from sarcophagi and rewards, though, and into the second of Wenny's most distinguished, or at least notable, jobs. Soon after being appointed to the rank of Semer, companion, and overseer of the officials of the palace, Wenny was tasked with removing four individuals from the court and dispossessing them of their former status. It is not clear exactly when when he was tasked with this job, but the removal of these four officials seems to have roughly coincided with a judicial hearing that occurred in Pepe's reign. Remembering back to episode 18, when Teti was murdered by a conspiracy of courtiers and bodyguards, it is no surprise that the kings immediately took a greater interest in the loyalty of their court and the integrity of their bodyguards. This was something that Wenny was directly involved in. Quote, His Majesty appointed me as a sole companion and overseer of the officials of the palace, and four officials of the palace who were there were dispossessed. I acted so that His Majesty praised me in carrying out the bodyguard service, in preparing the royal road, and in preparing the royal stations. I acted to perfection so that his majesty praised me because of it more than anything else. 
end quote. Wenny's service here seems to have been connected heavily with the protection of the king. He removed four courtiers from the royal service, perhaps because Pepi I did not trust their loyalty. He acted as a bodyguard, ensuring the king was securely protected at all times. He ensured that on journeys up and down Egypt, the road ahead was secure and safe, a job for which Pepi I praised him greatly. King Pepi does not seem to have felt very secure in his person. But before we write him off as a paranoid ruler unable to trust anyone, Wenny gave us another account which suggests pretty strongly that the king had a good reason for his mistrust. Quote, when proceedings were instigated in the palace against the queen, his majesty had me go down to judge, my being singled out. There was not any official or vizier in the court except for me because of my excellence. It was I alone who put it into writing, while my office was only that of overseer of officials of the palace. Never before had the like been heard in such a private matter of the palace. It seems that a second conspiracy against an Egyptian king emerged during the reign of Pepi I, for which Wenny was tasked with the prosecution and judgment of the conspirators. The identity of these conspirators remained of the highest secrecy. The queen was not named, and we learn nothing that might give us a hint as to which of Pepi's many wives was involved in these affairs. In fact, it's quite remarkable that a court case conducted in such secrecy was recorded in Wenny's tomb in any form. I'm surprised the official was allowed to mention such a dire situation, given that it had many negative implications for the sanctity of the king and his safety. In later eras of Egyptian history, when a plot was hatched against the ruling king, it usually came about because of the king's various wives and children were locked in a quiet struggle to ensure their branch of the family became the next ruler. But Pepi I was a young man when this conspiracy occurred, and probably did not have many children. So if the conspiracy was aimed at replacing him with one of his heirs, the child in question would have been an infant at best. Unless the queen was seriously hoping she could seize power as a regent, the idea of a plot based around the succession is difficult to clarify. After all, even the great pair of female rulers, Kenty Kauses I and II, had never taken on the role of king in their own right. They had acted as guardians of their royal sons, and led the kingdom from the side of the throne, rather than sitting upon it. Perhaps Pepe's queen was hoping to achieve something similar. In times of dynastic instability, it was possible for a woman to act as the de facto ruler, even if her power was hidden behind the face of her son. Wenny's involvement in the prosecution of this conspiracy tells us nothing of its actors or their motivations. Now, historically speaking, most conspiracies against a king do seek to replace the ruler 
with someone more agreeable to the conspirators, or more capable of being controlled. As Pepe I matured, he perhaps began to take on his own initiatives, to the point that one of his wives and a small group of courtiers sought to replace him with someone they could control. Of course, at the end of the day, we simply don't know these details anymore. Certain aspects of Pepe's reign are unusual, and provide us with hints that the royal state was sometimes at odds with itself during his reign. For instance, sometime in the first half of his reign, Pepe changed his throne name. Remembering back to our earlier episodes, an Egyptian king took on five distinct names following his accession. The names we know them by today are usually their personal names, the ones they were born with, or later gave themselves. But to the population at large, and to foreign dignitaries and rulers, they were known not by their personal name, which would be far too familiar, but by the regal name they took when they rose to office. Pepe I's regal, or throne name, was originally Nefer Sa Hor, or Youthful Son of Horus. Sometime in his first 20 years, he changed this name from Nefer Sahor to Mary Ray, or Beloved of Ray. Some scholars have made a big deal of this name change, and suggested that it was related to tensions within the religious sector of the state. This is not really supported by the evidence, and as scholarship advances its understanding of the Egyptian royal ideology, it is more appropriate to say that Pepe redefined himself in order to shift the perception of him as a ruler. As a young boy, barely in control of his throne, the name Youthful Son of Horus was appropriate, but it did have subtle negative connotations. After all, the king was not the son of Horus, the king was Horus, and he should certainly not be considered a youthful son, with all the implications of impetuousness and weakness that might come with great youth. Pepe's name change shifted the official identity of the king from some young son of the royal god to an individual who had the blessing and love of the great eternal creator god, Ray. For the Egyptians, this would be something like changing your name from Joey Jr. to Joseph. Without changing the essential personality of the king, or the fact that he was endorsed by the gods, it took Pepe from a youthful image to one of strength, status, and individuality. Pepe I Nefer-Sahor may be the juvenile phase of this king's rule, but Pepe I Merire was when the king came into his own, and Winnie was at the forefront of this affair. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from a corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. 
I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? <laughs> I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Today's episode is perhaps the first time in the podcast where I get to narrate a military campaign. We've skimmed over the Egyptian military up to this point, mostly due to a lack of evidence. But with the autobiography of Weni, we receive a first-hand account of Egyptian campaigns into Asia and Nubia. First, a tiny bit of background on the Egyptian army. The army of Old Kingdom Egypt was not professional in the sense which we would later connect with Alexander the Great or the Roman Legion. Egyptian military forces were raised when needed, and they returned to their villages and homesteads when disbanded by the king. They were paid with rations and plunder, but no consistent salary or rewards like plots of land. In later eras, this form of reward would begin to appear, but during the Old Kingdom it remained a very basic form of military organization. The army was composed primarily of foot soldiers and archers. We learn this from small wooden models placed in tombs, and the temple decorations from the New Kingdom. The foot soldiers wore little armour, but carried a large shield shaped like a rectangle with a rounded top. They carried a wooden spear for combat, which we assume they used in ranks rather than single fighting. The average Egyptian farmer would not have the training necessary to fight skillfully on his own, but a troop of men can be taught to stand together in some sort of order with far less effort. The archers were probably more professional than the foot soldiers, as their task would require more training and a greater state expense on equipment. The archers formed the elite corps of the army during the Old Kingdom. But when we reach Dynasty 18, we will see the Egyptians incorporate chariot warfare into their arsenal to devastating effect. The soldiers were raised from the many villages and towns scattered up and down the Nile Valley, and featured a great many officials, nobles, and royal companions to lead the various battalions and serve as the king's bodyguard. Weni was in the vanguard of this corps when Pepe I gathered his army. Quote, it was after he had formed an army of many thousands from the south in its entirety that His Majesty took action against the sand dwellers of the Aamu, attacking southwards at Elephantine and northwards at Medjanit. He campaigned against the Nubians of Ert Yeret, the Medjai Nubians the Nubians of Yam, the Nubians of Wawat, the Nubians of Kau, and against the Libyans of the land of Tehemu. End quote. Pepi I's army plunged into the deep south of Egypt, campaigning into modern-day Sudan 
against the various tribal groups who dwelled in that region. They pushed westward into Libyan areas, against the nomadic desert tribes that lived to the west of the Nile Valley, in regions such as the Dakla Oasis. The assaults carried out by this army of Pepi I were probably aimed at subjugating local raiding groups, rather than conquest itself. The Egyptians lacked the population necessary to administer Nubia and keep it in direct subjugation on a permanent basis. Instead, they would take captives and livestock while killing those who resisted. Wenny continues, quote, His Majesty sent me at the head of this army, there being counts, there being royal seal-bearers, there being sole companions of the great estates, there being chieftains and estate rulers of the Southland and the Northland. I conducted military plans for them, my office being only that of overseer of the palace officials. I ensured that not one of these soldiers and officials struck his fellow, so that not one of them stole a loaf of bread or a pair of sandals, so that not one of them seized a bolt of cloth from any town, so that not one of them took away a goat from anyone. Wenny's task was not to lead troops in the fighting itself, but to administer the army and ensure its good behaviour. By restraining the impulses of a group of men engaged in violent behaviour, Wenny protected the Egyptian communities from theft and loss on the part of the army moving through their regions. His service to this army was certainly effective, for Pepi I sent him out on campaign no less than five times during his reign, to defeat various groups to the south, the east, and the west. The Egyptians were not looking to conquer, merely to pacify, and by doing this they protected the all-important Nile Valley and Delta from population migrations, raiding, and disruption of trade or resource gathering. Wenny recounts these campaigns in a long and extremely repetitive set of phrases. Each line notes a different group that his forces attacked and that his army returned safely. For example, having hacked up the land of the sand dwellers, this army of mine returned safely. Having overturned its walled settlements, this army of mine returned safely. Having set fire to the crops of its people, this army of mine returned safely. Having brought back the troops therein as a great number of captives, this army of mine returned safely. With the result that his majesty praised me on account of it more than anything else. This passage is actually longer. I have cut out small bits to avoid excessive repetition. I think you get the gist from this little passage. How important Wenny considered it that he brought back his soldiers safely from these desert regions. Though he never talks about anything that we might call comradeship or esprit de corps, he certainly considered it one of his duties and responsibilities to ensure the army returned safely with as few casualties as possible. Then, Wenny was sent to crush a rebellion, and here we get perhaps a true account of his actions. I was told that there were rebels because of a dispute among the foreigners at Sheret Tep Wenju, 
I crossed over with rafts, together with these troops of mine. While half of this army of mine was on the northern route, I landed at the heights of the ridge. It was only after I had captured the foreigners in their entirety, and only after I had slain every rebel among them, that I returned. Weni's campaign against the nomadic tribes in the eastern desert crushed a small rebellion, and he seems to have approached them via a branch of the Nile Delta. Though we cannot place them exactly in the geographical sense, these nomadic groups probably resided somewhere close to the modern-day Suez Canal. Weni's campaign against the rebels was the last achievement he made during the reign of Pepi I, who died around this time. The reign of Pepi I is a fascinating one, for which the majority of our evidence comes from Weni's autobiography. Over four and a half decades of rule, Pepi I oversaw Egypt at a time of internal division. Conspiracies had brought down one king, and may have led to Usukare's overthrow. Pepi's accession was fragile, and the conspiracy against him was crushed quickly to ensure his strength was unchallenged. As the king matured, he launched these major military campaigns to secure Egypt's home territories, and gain both plunder and prestige for the ruling household. Weni, at the forefront of these events, was the loyal arm of the king, from whom we learn more about Pepi's reign than we do in any other source. Next time, we continue with the life of Weni, and the next king of Dynasty VI, a man named Merenre. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.